Please stand for the reading of God's word. Beginning with Hebrews 11 and turning to Judges 11. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Amen. Now let's turn to Judges 11. We'll read the first part of the history of Jephthah, verses 1 through 28 tonight. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you were in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. 
but they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Amen. And you may be seated. I think most of you have probably seen uh, those puzzles where you're given two pictures side by side, and at first you look at it and you think, well, that's the same picture. But then the instructions will say something like, find ten differences between these two pictures. And uh, commentator Barry Webb notices very helpfully, I think, that in the book of Judges, uh, things are repeatedly presented to us in that kind of manner, as the same and yet different. And when that happens, um, both the similarities and the differences are really important for us to notice. This is especially significant when we read Judges um, in the context of uh, the broader Bible history of the Old Testament, especially uh, what follows it in the books of Samuel. Uh, the historian in the books of Samuel is clearly conscious of the Judges' history and interacting with it. And there are these same but different patterns between some of the Judges and people like Saul and David. Um, and we could even go further and say that that same but different pattern um, is important on an even grander scale as we look at the, the great sweep of the history of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. And, and also as we find ourselves in that history, in the present day, right now in 2023 in State College, Pennsylvania, Resurrection OPC. Same but different. Let's keep that in mind tonight as we look here at part one of the history of Jephthah. It's going to be in uh, three sections tonight, which we're going to label first, A Hero Recalled, verses 1 through 11. Second, A History 
retold, verses 12 to 22. And then third, a heavenly recourse, verses 23 to 29. So a hero recalled, a history retold, and a heavenly recourse. Okay, so the first same but different puzzle emerges right away in verses 1 through 11. And that's the pretty clear comparison right on the surface uh, being drawn here between Jephthah and Abimelech. Abimelech. Now, Abimelech um, is pretty solidly a villain in the book of Judges. He is definitely wearing a black hat. Um, I've often warned you about uh, trying to divvy up Bible history into heroes and villains uh, to... um, uh, woodenly into the black hats and white hats. And, and I'll have to probably give you that same warning again with Jephthah, who, as it turns out, is a pretty complicated character. Um, but with Abimelech, it actually is really that simple. Abimelech, it's, it's cut and dry. He is a solidly evil character from the beginning to the end of his story. And so the fact that his backstory and Jephthah's backstory have an awful lot in common, um, that's, that's not uh, a, a positive sign when we meet Jephthah for the first time. It's, it's provocative. It's to make us think, what kind of person is, is this fellow going to be? Because he has a lot in common and in terms of his personal history with Abimelech. Like Abimelech, Jephthah is a kind of second-class son of a uh, dishonored woman. Abimelech's mother, remember, was Gideon's concubine, not his wife. And so uh, Abimelech, we find, uh, living separately from the main uh, part of Gideon's family who lived at Ophrah. But Abimelech, we find, living in his mother's hometown, in Shechem. Um, And there's that separation between the 70 sons of Gideon by his wives over in Ophrah and the um, second-class son, over in Shechem, um, who's, who's been excluded from their company. And with Jephthah, it's a similar situation. His father uh, had a wife who bore him sons, but then he also had this other son by a prostitute, and that's Jephthah. And so, like Abimelech, he is also separated from his brothers. It says, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. Now we go on, and we find out that, like Abimelech, Jephthah ends up having gathered around him a collection of what the historian calls worthless fellows, verse 3, this um, kind of rough-and-tumble band of outcasts who um, have this sketchy reputation. But on the other hand, they end up giving Jephthah's um, uh, military power. He gains a reputation then for being a mighty warrior. And so this is another parallel with Abimelech. We could think at this point, so is this uh, positive, negative, or neutral? And you might initially think, well, obviously it's also negative. These are worthless men. It's not a very flattering description. But just to put the brakes on for a minute, we want to think about another same but different comparison that we can start to make here. That is with a much, much more uh, positive figure in the Old Testament, uh, to put it mildly, and that's King David, right? Um, 
quite a contrast with the kind of pseudo-king Abimelech, right? They're, they're pretty much opposites in terms of a model of what a king in Israel could be or ought to be. So think about King David's backstory before he becomes king. When he's on the run from Saul, you remember the description of when he is operating out of the cave of Adullam in 1 Samuel 22. And it says there that everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. So at that moment, David's group of followers uh, wouldn't have seemed so different from Jephthah's group of followers, perhaps. Okay, so we want to kind of suspend judgment a little bit here at first. So rather than seeing this band of worthless fellows as an automatic strike against Jephthah's character, maybe we need to see it, uh, maybe we need to kind of wait and see, see it as kind of raising a question. Given his backstory of his parentage, given this cast of characters who are gathering around him, what is this man going to do? What kinds of choices is this man going to make? What kind of leader, what kind of person is this man going to be? And again, the answer is going to be complicated. Third parallel with Abimelech uh, comes in, Abim- in uh, uh, um, his, his, uh, Jephthah's rise to power as a leader in Israel. Um, so, the Ammonites make war against Israel, verse 4. Uh, the leaders of Gilead start to think, we really don't have anybody who can um, lead us militarily against this enemy. No, nobody in Gilead has the strength or the skill or the experience to organize us, to lead us in that kind of fight with any chance of success. And remember how the last chapter ended, where they kind of sent out a um, call for resumes and uh, when they said the, the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And so in this particular crisis of leadership, and that's really what this is, it is a crisis of leadership. There is a leadership vacuum, as some would, would call it. Um, and the elders of Gilead are thinking, okay, what is it that we really need to solve this problem that we find ourselves in? And what they decide is, we need a man like Jephthah. We need a mighty warrior. That's what they want. Now, Jephthah is understandably reluctant at first. Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? And Now you come to me when you're in distress, now that you need me. And um, so here, this is pretty interesting. There is another same but different comparison to be made here. That's the most surprising one so far. But when you compare chapter 11 with chapter 10, it just is, it's unmistakable. In the way the narratives are being told, there's a clear parallel, and more than one commentator has pointed this out, between Gilead's dialogue with Jephthah in chapter 11 and Israel's dialogue with the Lord back in chapter 10. So think about how um, Israel rejects the Lord, worshiping idols, uh, at the beginning of chapter 10. Beginning of chapter 11, Gilead rejects Jephthah, right? 
Well, then the Ammonites start to distress Israel, start to distress Gilead. And so Israel uh, returns to the Lord to ask for help. Gilead returns to Jephthah to ask for help. Okay? Well, what happens the first time that that plea is made? Well, in both cases, the plea is met with resistance. So the Lord at first says, listen, you've forsaken me. I'm not going to save you anymore. Why don't you go and turn to those gods that you've been serving for help? Similarly, and again, following the same analogy, Jephthah says, listen, you, you guys hated me. You drove me away. Why are you coming to me for help now? But then go to the next step. In each case, the plea is repeated. No, we really mean it. Um, we are sincere. The, the, the people demonstrate their, their sincerity. And in each case, the second time, there's a different response. In chapter 10, the Lord becomes impatient with Israel's suffering. In chapter 11, Jephthah relents and says, okay, um, if you will uh, have me back, and I will be your leader. Okay, now, in terms of this uh, same but different analysis, I don't think that I have to explain to you the differences between Jephthah and the Lord. That's obvious. What I do want to make sure is you see these, these parallels. Um, since uh, this is reminding us that for all of his flaws, and we are going to see some severe flaws, some tragic flaws in Jephthah's character and choices as we continue his history. But for all of his flaws, we also must, the text is, is drawing us to see Jephthah as the deliverer that the Lord is providing for his people in response to his people's repentance. What's happening through Jephthah is something that the Lord is doing, the Lord is accomplishing uh, in response to the, the kind of bigger story of, uh, outlined in chapter 10 of Israel's relationship with God. This should then prompt us, we go back to the comparison with Abimelech, to think, okay, there are definitely clear, uh, clear parallels with Abimelech that signal that we should be watching out for the flaws in this character, that perhaps like Abimelech, he's going to turn out to, uh, have, to, to have a destructive influence on Israel, and that is going to be borne out in chapter 12. Uh, and well, actually, the end of this chapter and on into chapter 12. But we should also be prompted to think of the, the differences with Abimelech. He's the same and yet different. Notice something about Jephthah that is quite different from Abimelech, and that is the patterns of his speech. What kinds of things does Jephthah say? What fills um, the... the uh, that what, what fills and shapes the way that he speaks to the people of Gilead? And what I want to draw your attention to particularly is how frequently he takes on his lips the covenant name of God. Abimelech, you remember, is a Baal worshiper, right? But Jephthah, again, for all of his flaws, from the very beginning, he undertakes his leadership task by acknowledging explicitly his dependence on uh, the one true covenant God of Israel. It's, if the Lord gives the Ammonites over to me, verse 9, then I will be your head. The elders of Gilead said, the Lord will be witness between us. And Jephthah spoke all his words, verse 11, before the Lord. Narrator is quick to emphasize that. It's before the Lord that Jephthah is taking on this task, which in a sense then is is a sacred task given to him by God. 
uh, which will be sort of ratified um, in the verse after tonight's text where the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Now this um, God-centered orientation of Jephthah and uh, the patterns of his speech being filled with the name of the Lord continues on in the next section in the manner uh, in which he communicates with the Ammonites. We're calling this second section a history remembered. So one of the great themes of the book of Deuteronomy is the theme of remembering. Remember, 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 Moses says over and over and over. Remember the things that God has done for you. Don't forget the things that God has done. Hold on to this history uh, that's, that Moses is recounting in that book of everything that God did for Israel, in, especially in the Exodus and in the wilderness wanderings. Now, the king of the Ammonites is justifying his war with a false historical narrative. Uh, it's, it's, it's propaganda twisting the history of uh, the territory of Gilead, which, um, by the way, is, is on the eastern side of the Jordan River. It's in the territory settled by the, the two and a half tribes who, who um, didn't, cross, who, who didn't uh, settle in the heartland of Israel over to the west of the Jordan. Instead, they stayed and settled on the eastern side. So this is where all this is playing out. Okay, so um, on that eastern side of the Jordan. That's where the great victories uh, near the end of Moses' life took place over Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. So this is before Joshua takes over, before crossing the Jordan, before the battle of Jericho. This is near the end of Moses' life. These victories take place on the eastern side of the Jordan where God gives Israel this portion of land um, previously occupied by Sihon and Og. Now those victories over Sihon king of the Amorites and Og, king of Bashan, are, are recounted many times in the Bible, including in Deuteronomy, including in the Psalms. Um, and so Israel did take that land. Uh, that was part of the inheritance the Lord gave to them on the eastern side of the Jordan. Now, I know we're getting a little bit into the weeds here, but uh, we have to make a point here that's very important for the history playing out now. Deuteronomy is equally clear that Israel was not to take any land and did not take any land from two people groups in particular, the Moabites and the Ammonites. The Moabites and the Ammonites. They were not to touch the Moabite and Ammonite territory. And why was that? Well, if you go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis 19, what you find is that Moab and uh, then the ancestor of the Ammonites named Ben-Ami um, were brothers. They were the two sons of Lot, Lot being Abraham's nephew, right? So the Moabites and the Ammonites had this um, distant family relationship with Israel. They were going to be neighbors of Israel, but they were not among the Canaanite nations that Israel was actually supposed to, to drive out, dispossess. And that's why in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, the Lord says this. He says, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given R to the people of Lot for possession. And then in verse 19 of that chapter, it says, And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. So the king of the Ammonites here is claiming 
that this territory he's attacking was always their land. That um, they're trying to take back what was rightfully theirs. But Jephthah knows his history. He knows his history of Deuteronomy. He's able to say, no, that's not what happened. See, Jephthah is at his best here as a leader of Israel. Because he is remembering. Because he is recounting the mighty works of God in Israel's history. Uh, You may be thinking, I'm a little uncomfortable with how positively you're speaking of Jephthah. Because... I know what's coming. I know that that Jephthah is going to do some terrible things at the end of this chapter and on into the next. And that's true. There's no doubt about it. So how can we be speaking so positively about him now? Well, like I said, Jephthah is a complicated character. There's another same but different comparison perhaps we can make with another leader in Judges who is definitely a hero on the one hand, but definitely also does some horrible and destructive things. And that's Gideon. Jephthah fits into a very similar mold. What we want to do is we want to ask, not is he a good guy or a bad guy, so much as we want to ask, when is he at his best, and why then? And when is he at his worst, and why is that the case? What marks the high points and the low points, and what is that teaching us about leadership in Israel? Here we find Jephthah at his best, and why is that? He's at his best because he's remembering the history of what God has done for Israel. And he is leading God's people to victory on the basis of those mighty acts of God in the past. This is what godly leaders do all through the Bible. They remember what God has done. They recount that history and transmit that salvation history to others. And they act with courage on the basis of that history, trusting God that, be, that what God has done for his people in the past, he will continue to do in their present. That is what godly leaders do all the way through the Bible. And so we come then to Jephthah's conclusion in verses 23 to 29, um, what we're calling uh, a heavenly recourse. Um, Jephthah was a mighty warrior, right? Uh, it said that at the very beginning of the chapter. Um, and he had an army with him, right? And he could have, at this point simply appealed to the military might that he brought with him. He could have just looked at the Ammonites and said, listen, this is our territory. You'll be sorry if you don't get off our lawn. And just shaking his fist, rattled the saber. Um, But that is not what he, the argument he ultimately uses here to tell the Ammonites to um, stand down. He doesn't appeal to his own power. He appeals, rather, to a judge with a capital J. They didn't have capital J's in Hebrew, but I think the English translation is right to put it that way. A judge with a capital J who transcends the authority and the power of the Ammonites and also transcends the authority and the power of Jephthah, 
which as we see his flaws, is so important for us to remember that it is the Lord, the judge with a capital J, who's ultimately Israel's source of confidence and strength and security. The judge who transcends every other judge in this book, in fact, every other character in this book, Israel or Canaanite alike. Uh, Verse 27, the Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. It's the Lord who's ultimately going to arbitrate between these nations and these armies, and it is to his transcendent authority that Jephthah appeals here. Notice the way that uh, Jephthah gets in a jab at the false god of uh, the enemy when he says, will you not possess what Chemosh, your god, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed for us, we will possess. Now remember what started this whole cycle back in chapter uh, 10, when Israel went worshiping the gods of the Ammonites. That's how all this started. It was when they went and worshipped the gods of the Ammonites, that's what led to them coming under the oppressive power of the Ammonites. Now what Jephthah is doing is he is very publicly reversing that, following through, we could say, on Israel's repentance from chapter 10. And so just as the Lord initially uh, provoked Israel to, to deeper repentance by saying, why don't you ask those other gods that you've been worshipping for their help? Jephthah now uh, brings that same kind of response against the Ammonite king. He says, why don't you take whatever territory your God gives you? But as for us here in Israel, we're going to take our stand, plant our flag on the territory that the Lord, our covenant God, has given to us. Again, this speech marks Jephthah at his best. Not only remembering the history of God's saving actions of the past, but now appealing to the Lord as Israel's protector and provider and judge, as the sovereign one, the arbiter between the nations, and uh, the one who's going to guide Israel's future as he has the past, like them says. See, Jephthah at his best. This is the kind of leader Israel needs. He's showing the kind of insight and faith that all of Israel's better leaders and kings show when they're at their best. And in fact, in the big context of, the again, the, that broader sweep of salvation history, we could perhaps go so far as to make one more same but different comparison between Jephthah and the ultimate leader of the people of God, the Lord Jesus. Because all through the book of Judges, we're going to be making this same but different comparison. How is the leadership of these judges pointing us in hope to the greater leader, Jesus? And how are their failures setting off as shadows the greater light of the perfect leadership of the Lord Jesus to come? Ralph Davis uh, reminds us of the times in Acts where the apostles tell the people of Jerusalem that Jesus is the Savior they rejected. The Savior they rejected. The Lord 
has made him king, though. This Jesus whom you crucify, the Lord has made him, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And so, in response to that message, what are the people of Jerusalem supposed to do now? Well, they are to repent. They are to turn to this Jesus, the mighty warrior, previously rejected, but now established as God's chosen leader and the only hope if they want to be delivered from their enemies. And so, as we today are setting out to follow the Lord Jesus as our captain in the mission that he has set before us, our circumstances right here in our living present, we can also compare with Israel's circumstances in the time of Jephthah and say, yeah, they're, they're different, no doubt, and yet they're also the same. In fact, the more things change in the history of the people of God, sometimes it seems the more they stay the same. Because as we face down the opposition of the world today, what are we facing? There are all kinds of false narratives, false stories, false accounts that the world is trying to give to us about the past, about our past, about our place in history, where we've come from and where we therefore are going. And as the people of God, what is our task as we live in the midst of that propaganda of the world seeking to twist the story of history It is to remember, to remember, to remember and to recount the truth about the past, about God's saving mighty acts in history on our behalf. That is what the urgent task of the people of God in the midst of a world full of lies and deception is to remember our history, to remember where we've come from, to remember how God's grace has brought us safe this far. It is to remind one another of our true inheritance, of where it comes from, of who has promised it to us, so that we will not yield to the temptations to trade that inheritance that we have in Christ for the lesser fleeting pleasures and paths that would seek to distract us from it, to draw us away from it. And also, so that we will not despair when we are threatened by the intimidating power of the forces that are arrayed against us. Instead, what we're to do is we are to remember the heavenly recourse that we share to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to this same judge with a capital J to whom Jephthah appealed, who has promised to protect us, to provide for us, and to vindicate us in the end, in spite of, and here's the crux of the matter when we look at Jephthah and find ourselves in connection with his story, in spite of all of the tragic, disastrous flaws that mar our own life stories. Because you see, our confidence is not in our ability to obey to stay faithful, to accomplish the mission we're given. Our confidence is in the Lord, the judge. We are so much more like Jephthah than we would like to admit. So often, we are more the same than different. 
And yet what we're reminded of, even through his failures, but now for tonight by his successes, is that the Lord of Jephthah is still on his throne. And that same Lord who used this deeply flawed man is still in the business of taking our weakness, of taking our sinfulness, of taking our frailty and our fear and our inadequacy, taking all the times when we're not at our best and when even our best is not good enough. And nonetheless, he is carrying out his plan for us and through us and in us. And he will not stop doing that until he has finished his good work that he has begun and that he's going to carry to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So the vital thing then is that we remember that we form our mental map of reality, of what the world is really like and our place in it according to his word. So that when we encounter the falsehood, the lies, the propaganda of the world coming against us to distort the facts about who God is, about who we are, about what God has done and said and promised us, we must learn and practice saying, no, because I remember. Because I remember what God has said about himself, what God has said about me, what God has said about my place in his world. I remember what he has done for me in Christ. I remember what he has done for, his pe- for the church in history. I remember what he has done for me and for my household in my own life and our lives together. And so I am confident as we'll sing in a moment together, that when Satan assails us to stop up our path and courage all fails us, we triumph by faith. He cannot take from us, though oft he has tried, this heart-cheering promise the Lord will provide. And no strength of our own and no goodness we claim. Yet, since we have known of the Savior's great name in this Our strong tower for safety we hide. The Lord is our power. The Lord will provide. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we um, rejoice at this high point in the story of Jephthah, and we also tremble as we know what is coming next week. We are so thankful for the leader, the captain of our salvation that you have provided for us, who is able to prevail over even our weakness and failure and faithlessness. Our great God, we pray that in Christ you would equip us and help us to remember, to recount and transmit and to live by the truth of who you are and what you have done and what you have promised and to be so immersed in it, so formed and shaped by it, that the lies and deception and propaganda of the world are powerless to shake us from that firm foundation you've given to us in your word. Help us, we pray, because the battle is fierce, the opposition is strong, but we place our confidence in you, our great God. We trust that you will provide. We pray all of this 
in the strong name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Amen.